I just feel like, you know, we built this house of cards and then we took a bunch of popsicle sticks and we're like trying to frame it up around the outsides with the popsicle sticks and TypeScript is the popsicle sticks. And that just leads us to one last thing to say. JavaScript should be destroyed. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. Get instant visibility into the health of your software, actionable, real-time insights into the quality and the performance of your web and mobile apps. And I'm here with John Daniel Trask, co-founder and CEO of Raygun. JD, how does the interface of Raygun help a team see progress? Because sometimes progress is better than simply goals. You know, the goal is to have high performing software, of course, but the progress to get there is not easily measured or celebrated along the way. Yeah, this is something that I often find I end up speaking with more at the executive level with some customers because it's also important to remind folks that aren't necessarily software engineers that, you know, bugs are common. You know, it's not the team's fault that there are bugs. And that's where we go back to the trajectory thing. Like, are we actually making progress? So sometimes the work we're doing with folks, we present like an error inbox where we group things up so that you're not having to deal with every single instance. You can work at the sort of root cause level. And so that just looks really familiar, almost a little bit like Gmail, but you've got some charts, some beautiful attractive charts that will show you how you're going. It could be an engineering manager. It could be a QA leader. It could be anybody that can kind of say, look, the chart is going down towards the right. You know, that's what we want to be doing. Doing less less errors or we want to get the response times up similarly you want to make sure that you're presenting that data in the most scientific way so no averages you know just just use medians p99s i want to understand the outliers you know averages are just lies so get the real data understand where you are and just start chipping away at it very cool thank you jd all right head to raygun.com to learn more and start your free 14-day trial no credit card required join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use raygun every single day to deliver flawless experiences to their customers again raygun.com this is js party your weekly celebration of javascript and the web connect with us on the web at jsparty.fm on twitter at jspartyfm and at all things open we'll be there will you Thanks to our friends at Fastly for delivering our shows super fast all around the globe. Check them out at Fastly.com. And to Fly.io, deploy your app servers close to your users, no ops required. Learn how at Fly.io. Okay, hey, it's party time, y'all. Jared, you're in a friend, and I'm joined by two of my friends, Nick Nisi. What's up, man? Ahoy, hoy, How's it going? It's going great. I'm also joined by K-Ball. What's up, K-Ball? Ahoy, hoy, How's it going? <laughs> I was thinking as Nick paused that I should just like try to do my best hoy hoy impression. That was really good. I mean, maybe we won't, we won't even know the difference. So I have to introduce K-Ball again after that one. <laughs> well, it is party time. It's for us, I guess, a different time more of a party day we're recording on a friday we normally record on a thursday so friday is kind of a more of a party day but we're not recording at more of a party time it's early morning for us this is because of internet problems yesterday so you listening non-live it's the same for you but for us we're kind of like having our coffee and talking about the news that's the plan at least hopefully it feels like a party anyhow but it's going to be a news discussion kind of an episode first i thought it'd be fun to Talk about some personal news. Like, what have we been working on lately? What have we been up to? I got this idea because I saw that Nick had finished this cutover. You've talked about it a couple of times throughout, I think. You've been working on this switch to Vite, or was this a new thing that I didn't know about? I've probably been talking about it. It's been going on for a little while. Very slowly replacing Create React app with Vite. And it's been a lot of fun. It's been much, much faster, and it's been kind of bringing us up into more you know, modern JavaScript, ES modules, things like that, which has been really, really fun. It is only one app in like a very, very large monorepo full of apps. So mm. there's lots of create React app to go. But I did fully switch out and remove React scripts, which meant like reconfiguring Jest to like manually have that configured, 
and then delete it. And then I did it for a second app last night in the monorepo and it took like an hour. So like very exciting because I've already hit all of the pitfalls that are possible. I'm pretty sure. So like I just hit them and I was like, oh yeah, I know how to fix that. I know how to fix that. And just carried right along. That does feel good once you've already, it's like playing the same level that you've already played previously yeah. on Mario Brothers or something. You're like, I can just cruise through this level. I know all the particulars. Sometimes that just feels good. That first migration is a lot harder than it feels like it should be though. Yeah. I did a similar migration beginning of this year, last year, something like that. And, you know, we have not a create react application, but we were using Webpack and all these things and we migrated to V and like, there was like a week that I was focused on it. Mm -hmm. And then there was like trickle on work for like, that was fitting in around the edges for a couple weeks after that, before we finally got it switched over. Oh Yeah. We had to really start like lower level because we were on like older versions of everything. We had node 14, so we had to get up to node 16 at least to continue with that. But then like, you know, we had to upgrade the version of Storybook we were using. And then we we used the Storybook Builder Vite to replace its Webpack build with a Vite build. And honestly, that was the most like startling of changes because Storybook would take like over 90 seconds to start up. And when I switched it over to V, three seconds stops. Nice. That's the type of speed up we saw with Vite. Well, and I that's interesting. So we have been using a a storybook equivalent called Ladle that somebody built oh, nice. specifically when Storybook didn't support Vite. Yeah. And so it was like, okay, this is way faster and all these sorts of things. But we run into some limitations because it's not all of Storybook. And so hearing that Storybook itself sped up that much moving to Vite, that's a that might be an argument that we actually don't need this like slightly less supported <laughs> variant just for performance. Yeah, I like Storybook, but it's still difficult and the documentation is tough, but it makes for much faster like component level development, which I really, really like. Yeah, that was the win we got, especially like our um, development environment still references a cloud database, which means that local development can be often very slow and cutting that out of the loop is amazing. Yeah. We have some internal packages as well that we consume and I actually converted those to like ship both a CommonJS and ESM version so that we could use either with different projects. And I didn't switch it to V, but I switched it to ES build, which is the Go library that V uses. And it was, it was going from like, I don't know, 10 seconds to build that, those projects to like 300 milliseconds. Like it was just ridiculously fast. But then yes, build, all it does is ignore the types. It doesn't actually like <laughs> provide that. Nice. So if you want to like ship a library and have the type definitions with the library, you have to also do that. So it's like, oh, we can switch this to ES build and get it down to 300 milliseconds and then add six seconds to generate types with the TSC compiler. <laughs> Ignoring the types, that just sounds like something I should get into. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I ignore the entire type script, not just the types themselves. Nick Nisi, there's a project for you. TSC compiler built with Go. <laughs> I hear that it's not uh, super possible right now, at least. But there are some cool projects out there, and maybe we'll talk about some of them today. But referring back to what Jared just said, it's only a matter of time, Jared. <laughs> well, you can continue to say that, and I, and you could be right, but it could be a matter of a long time. You know, <laughs> I'm incredibly resolute. You'll find. Oh, I know. So <laughs> types help me as an individual, but where what really made them blow my mind is when I'm working with a team and trying to help refactor and prevent issues and help people refactor and like yeah jared you're like basically a solo developer still right like i know you totally. work with a couple folks on changelog but yeah i feel like they can be helpful for an individual but like a lot of the value prop is okay you have these larger teams that are trying to understand apis and refactor apis and right like having both the auto doc type stuff and the refactoring assurance is just such a huge win Oh, yeah. Yeah. When it boils down, I was trying to think of the episode. I think it was the Dino Fresh episode where Luca Casanato pinned me to the table because I was just giving him a hard time about TypeScript because Nick wasn't there. And I had to give somebody a hard time. And he eventually pinned me down and started talking about all these benefits and stuff. And I said, at the end of the day, it's just solving problems that I don't have as a solo dev. I just don't have those problems. And so it's, for me, it's just additional 
tooling, additional things. Now it's getting to be where it's like built more and more in, but I just don't have these problems. Now, working on teams, I can totally see those upsides and I'm sure they outweigh the downs. Well, and honestly, that's the type of optimization we should all be making, right? Going back to the React debate episode, right? Like if you're working on a relatively static site, why the heck are you using React? Right. It's solving problems you don't have. Totally. In fact, I was just talking to somebody the other day who was telling me that our entire website should be on Next.js. I was like, I don't know. It's pretty good. Like it works pretty well as is. It's an Elixir backend, JavaScript sprinkles, front end, server side rendered HTML. And I just asked them, I said, what do I gain by rewriting my entire website in Next.js besides being able to say it's on Next.js? And uh, I said, it's cached all around the world really fast. And I'm sure there are some gains, but what a huge undertaking. And so it's really like, I wouldn't be sure there's some gains. Well, that's how I hedge. I say I'm sure there's some gains because I don't know what they all are. And I don't want to be bullheaded about it. But why rewrite when you don't have to? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. But uh, because everyone's using Next.js now, you know, it should be in React. Now, when it comes time to do a redesign or something, we're going to revisit what we use. And at that time, we're going to try to do our best to make a sound decision. But yeah, use the right tool for the job. And the hard part is figuring out what that tool is. The easy thing to do is to just use the popular thing. And that's not always the right tool for the job. Agreed. Okay, moving on from Nick's personal news. I've been shipping some stuff lately. We shipped chapters support yes. across all Changelog podcasts. This was a, a long time desire of mine and a feature we've been working on, not straight through, but off and on for the last three or four months. There was one big technical hurdle which is that we were previously doing all of our ID3 tags on the MP3s by shelling out to FFmpeg. And FFmpeg is an amazing tool with lots of features. I mean, the longest man page in human history. That's how you know it's good. Yeah, because it's so many features, but one feature it does not have is the ability to write ID3 v2 chapters, which is like this special addendum to the v2 spec. And the FFmpeg folks are not interested in it because it's very much an audio thing and that's more of a video tool, generally speaking. So we needed a way of writing those tags in Elixir. So we worked with our friend, Lash Vikman, who wrote an ID3v2 Elixir library for us, which we open sourced. And then I took that, integrated it into our stack, and we are now chaptering all of our shows, which feels really cool. I've been talking about it a lot. I'll put some blog posts into the show notes for people who are interested in the details of that. But... I'm about done talking about it. We've covered it and uh, happy to have it out there. And we're just going to keep chaptering our shows. So if you're listening in a podcast app that supports chapters, unlike Spotify, then check it out. It's right there. You're in a chapter right now. You can see what's coming up next. You can skip to cooler parts of the show or whatever you want to do. That's probably the biggest thing we've shipped in terms of like a technical change to our podcast since we added transcripts. And are you manually deciding the chapter names? Yep. So as producers, we decide the chapter names. So you have like 10x'd your workload in terms of figuring out titles. Yes. So you set the title one thing on the show and then a subtitle. And now we have the title that still, plus every single chapter has some sort of a title, which is actually kind of fun though. I'm starting to like put little jokes in the chapter names and stuff because you, you realize that most people don't care and really might get a laugh out of it. So that's actually kind of been a nice creative outlet. It has added probably 20 to 30 minutes to our overall production flow because they got to be there and we want them to be good. If they're not good, what's the point? So yes, I have to do a lot of titles, but they're like lower stakes titling. You know, it's like naming your fourth kid versus the first one. <laughs> <laughs> what's your fourth kid's name, Jared? Sorry, Nora. No, she's five. Ezra. Sorry, Ezra. I threw you under the bus. K-Ball, what have you been working on lately? I don't see anything in the dock. Yeah, well, so that's the fun thing about being a manager is it's really hard to like point to something concrete that I did. <laughs> Answer some emails? I was thinking about this. Schedule some meetings? Lots of meetings. Yeah, one of the fun things I get to do is scare engineers off from being managers because anytime <laughs> they need to schedule something with me, they open up my calendar, they look at it, and they go, ah, and run away. <laughs> I did an all-day planning meeting the other day. That was fun. I got to tell a lot of people, no, you can't put 10 pounds of stuff in a five-pound bag. Can you please tell me which five pounds is the most important? All of them, all 10 pounds does not all 10 pounds. help. Right. 
It's all highest priority. And I was reflecting, like as a manager, that is like half of your job is you tell one set of people, no, you can't put 10 pounds in a five pound bag, please prioritize. And you tell another set of people, please, can we make this five pound bag into a seven pound bag? What do we need to do? (laughs) That's awesome. I saw a funny tweet the other day that said along the lines of, I didn't become, quote, an engineering manager. Instead, what I did was I, quote, accepted a pay raise in which I must agree to never write code again, end quote. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder if you ever feel like that. I do write some code still, but it's pretty rare and it's declining. And in fact, there's an interesting aside on this, something that came up in a retro. So I was, I still occasionally will tech lead a project, right, where I'm doing the architecture and things. That's actually pretty common in the industry. There's this like whole role of like tech lead manager, somebody who's managing a set of people on tech leading. Like lots of companies do this and it sucks. And it sucks for a few different reasons. So I had already kind of realized why it sucked for me because it feels like there's too many things and you can't be good at any of them. But came up in this retro a couple of other reasons it sucks. It sucks for the team because number one, you create a bad power dynamic, right? So like a tech lead, needs to be making mm-hmm. estimates. They probably need to be asking their team what's reasonable, but they, they kind of also need to put a line in the sand. Like, I think we can do it by this time. That's hard enough as it is, but if the person who's trying to put those lines out and asking the team, is this reasonable, can you do it, is their manager, now there's a power dynamic that makes it harder for them to be clear and say no. And you can overcome some of that through relationships and other things, but that's also a structural power thing. That's not going away. So that's a problem. The other problem comes back to the calendar thing, right? If you're tech leading a project, you want to be available to everybody on that project to answer questions, help guide, do all these things. I'm in meetings from eight till I get done with work. Like, how is that going to happen? Like, I'm not available if I'm also tech leading the project. So I thought that was a, a really interesting insight. And especially because... Like I had, once again, I had sort of thought, okay, this is not a great situation for me, but it's filling holes in the team. It's going to help us get there. But it's actually, it's harming the team Mm. when you have a manager also being the tech lead. And so, you know, realities being what they are, many teams, you don't have somebody else to do that. I'm thankful I do have some people who can tech lead and we're kind of making sure that that happens going forward. But it, yeah, it was kind of an interesting like, oh, I was thinking about me, but I should have been thinking about the team when it comes to why this is a bad idea. Yeah. So does the tech lead role gain that individual material things in compensation or is it just like a street cred thing or, you know? So tech lead is a really interesting thing because different companies treat it differently. Yeah. And even sometimes different teams within a company treat it differently. So some people treat it as a durable thing. Tech lead is a title. It's a role. This is a thing you're doing. That may come with rewards, financial or, or otherwise. It may not. Right. Many other places... Certainly the way my team is handling it, a tech lead is a transit or like transient thing related to a project. Right. You are tech leading this project. And it's a set of things that are part of being an engineer. And you do them in the context of a project. So it's not like a different role, a different title, or anything like that durable. Right. Is it rotational then, or is it based on, like some people lead better than others, or they, mm-hmm. they're practiced in that, so it seems like it could be a skill thing, but is it rotational, or is it certain people are always kind of leaders and they rotate around? I think it varies a lot by team. Yeah. What we're doing on my team right now is, it's not always the same person, and it has to do with a few factors. It has to do with aptitude, is this type of project something that is in your kind of wheelhouse has to do with desire? Do you want to be tech leading? Is this something exciting for you? Or is this something like super stressful? It has to do with your growth roadmap. Like, is this the direction that you're trying to grow right now and learn? So right now I I have kind of two folks who are more regularly tech leading. And then I have two other folks where I'm looking for the right project because it's kind of in their growth stretch area. Hmm but it's a rotation and based on a number of factors. Gotcha. Yeah, the ways that I've typically been in that role, it's been project-based, so I'm the tech lead of this project or that project. And what it usually like would boil down to was like I would be more much more involved in like the the roadmap like discussion, creating the technical side of the tickets, like laying down the details of what actually needs to be done to get the the product built or or meet whatever goals there are. And then I would spend about 50% of my time actually working on tickets and then the other 
50 is mentoring code reviews, like shepherding that part of it through and just keeping, keeping the oil flowing. I don't know why I said oil, but keeping <laughs> things flowing. And technical project management, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Keep that oil flowing. Well, we want to keep the oil <laughs> flowing around here as well. So we're going to take a break. That's been our personal news. Nick shipped Veet. I shipped some chapters. K-Ball shipped seven pounds of stuff in a five pound bag. <laughs> we'll be right back and we'll talk industry news right after this. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. Develop on the platform that sellers trust. Here's what you could do with Square. You could bridge more experiences. You could build online, mobile, and in-person commerce experiences that connect more customers and sellers. You can build custom booking solutions. You can create and track orders. You can accept payments. You can manage and curate inventory. You can organize customers. You can manage employees. You can extend Square gift cards to your app. You can use Afterpay. And all this is powered by the world-class Square API and SDKs that enable you to build full-featured business apps for yourself or millions of Square sellers. So much is available as a Square Solutions partner. Learn more and get started at changelog.com slash square. Again, changelog.com slash square. of stories and links and things going on around the web development world. First one up is Cloudflare has made a few announcements this week. I think it's like their birthday week or something. This is a new trend I'm seeing where companies will launch a bunch of stuff in a row and really try to make a splash. I know Superbase has done that. They call it launch week where they'll launch like, you know, five days in a row, one thing a day. Kind of a cool way of going out. And Cloudflare has announced a bunch of stuff this week. The one that we're focusing in on is not the Worker D open source Worker D. We may do a full episode on that. Maybe not. Hold on. We aren't focusing on the open source Worker D, which I th- I do think is interesting because they're taking their Cloudflare workers runtime and they're re- releasing an, an open source version so that you can run on your own infrastructure, which is I think is a wise move and probably one that most clouds would do well to imitate. But the one that I actually was more excited about and honestly have already implemented on our website in a matter of 30 minutes was Turnstyle. So Turnstyle is a new user-friendly privacy-preserving alternative to CAPTCHA. And CAPTCHA, as we all know, is one of the banes of our existence. Nick, let me ask you something. How many stop signs have you identified in your life? Oh, too many. How many trains? How many planes? How many automobiles? Oh, they're getting worse and worse too. It's so annoying. I feel like I fail 50% of the time. Yes. On a CAPTCHA. Yeah. I hate that it takes you, like, it'll be like, oh, identify all the ducks in this page. And there's a whole bunch of like, like, I'm like, is a mallard a duck? You're like, is a mallard a duck? (laughs) Or there's the one where it's like, it's a stop sign, but it crosses two grids, you know? And there's like the main grid, which like, are you wanting me to have every part of the stop sign selected or just the main portion? I always think about that. If there's a pixel of the stop sign. Because you're afraid to do the wrong one and then get rejected, you know? Yeah. But that's the thing. If it sends you to another page and asks you to do it again, did it reject you? Because I get rejected a lot. I think that's a rejection, man. I think you're <laughs> I think you're darn near a robot at this point. <laughs> so Google does have their, of course, most CAPTCHAs, ReCAPTCHA, Google ReCAPTCHA. The one that's on our website is Google-based. And at the end of the day, Google is a large ad company. So you're putting their, their trackers on your website and requiring people to identify themselves to Google to prove they're not robots. So there's that angle as well. There's other alternatives. We tried HCAPTCHA for a while, which didn't work as well as reCAPTCHA, so we just use reCAPTCHA in in anger. This is a cool alternative, and it's interesting because they're not requiring any human interaction, but they are doing a whole bunch of device challenges. Like They're trying to identify you as a human based on different aspects of your web browser, the JavaScript runtime, kind of some stuff that we don't really know exactly, all that's going on, which might be a little creepy as well. You mean browser fingerprinting? Yes, all sorts of things that, but they're guaranteeing that it's private. In what 
manner are they making this guarantee? Well, they do have this whole... Like, are they sending network traffic back to Cloudflare, or are they keeping it all on your domain and local? They're certainly sending stuff back to Cloudflare. They certainly are. There's no way for us to verify their guarantee that they're keeping it private. Right. Well, they do say Cloudflare has a long track record of investing in user privacy, and each one of these words is a link to something they're doing in the privacy space. And they are using this cool new technology that they developed with Apple called Private Access Tokens, which actually allows the device and Apple, something deep down in your device that Apple can do. I don't know if it's in the secure enclave. I'm not sure how it works to actually identify this as a human without any identifying information. So there's at least collaborators there. So it's not like all Cloudflare is doing. I mean, they might be guaranteeing your privacy or actually keeping your privacy, I should say. But if they're sending network traffic back and we're not looking at exactly what's being sent and if there's cookies attached to it and all these things, we have no way to verify that that is actually guaranteeing privacy. But it's just a kind of trust us. Yes. I'd rather trust them probably than Google because... Oh, yeah. Which is why they appeal to their track record. But also you're kind of at least distributing your trust to a couple different entities. You know, like it's not all Google. It's like, well... Pros and cons to that, right? Google does already have all my data, so... Resistance is futile, all will be assimilated. (laughs) I mean, there is some truth to that. Well, what if we stop giving them all so much of our data? What if we remove Google Analytics? What if we use alternatives for all these different little services that they are using to collect our information, and then all they have is our personal emails and private thoughts? (laughs) We'll just buy those little services. All they have then is, yeah, my all my emails, all my documents, all my search history, my browser history, except I use Brave, so maybe not that, but yeah. Right. And me, I might be a little more paranoid than the, the average bear, and there are a few people who are probably more paranoid than the average bear, but like 70, 80, 90% of the population, I don't see how this is going to make that big of a difference in how much info Google has about them. But... That's not to say it's a bad thing. And like reCAPTCHA sucks. So like not having to deal with reCAPTCHA, that's already a huge win, right? If you can do it automatically. I just, I love the emphasis on privacy and I think that ship has sailed for pretty much everyone. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a good point though. Like (laughs) I hate doing those stupid CAPTCHA things. Uh So like this is like a a trade-off, right? Of comfort versus security and i will i will pick that every time but i am overly paranoid and like half the time i have to reload safari without content blockers to even get the captcha to show up because they're trying to block whatever creepy thing that the captcha is adding to the page to begin with i wonder if that'll impact this it's true depends i guess on how creepy it looks to a content blocker yeah yeah we've definitely had all sorts of like our number one support request on changelaw.com is like, I can't sign up. And it's because of reCAPTCHA. Because something with their browser, or their blocking, or the thing doesn't show, or hides behind, or whatever. And we actually had more of a failure rate with hCAPTCHA, because I was trying to be just, you know, I was trying to not use Google for a while, and I was like, ah, this thing just doesn't work. Switch to reCAPTCHA. And here's the problem, y'all. We still get tons of bots signing up. Now, I think they're like human bots. Like, I think they're just like mechanical Turks or something. Because they're passing the reCAPTCHA. I mean, we're talking about probably a dozen a day. We get fakes, like just either spammers, they're either human spammers or they're robots that have figured out reCAPTCHA. So it's still on like solving my problem 100%, but it, it cuts it down from like, we were getting hundreds a day before I put it on. Now we're getting like a dozen. I just installed Turnstile last night. And I will say, if you're on reCAPTCHA and you want to give Turnstile a try, literally 30 minute cut over which is pretty fast for a rollout. It's super simple. It's pretty much the same API. You just like change the URL, change the script, and sign up and stuff. It's free for everyone, so that's cool. You don't have to be a clout. You got to come back next week and tell us how it impacted your robot signups. Yes. So I, they do give you a nice dashboard. I've, I've had 38 challenges issued, 63% visitor solve rate, 47% API solve rate. I don't know what the difference is between those two. I'll need to learn. It does a non-interactive solve, which is like the detection stuff. And then it will fall back to, I think, showing you something 
for an interactive solve, but I think it's just a checkbox, which it's had 24 non-interactive solves, zero interactive solves, and 14 fails. So that's probably in the matter of 12 hours. No, 16 hours. So I'll follow up, but uh, interesting offering, big problem out there dealing with bots and spammers and privacy non-protecting large organizations that provide us free tools. So we'll see what happens. All right, up next, let's talk about updates from the 92nd TC39 meeting, which I think was Nick's. It was. Yeah, I put this in there. Update us. Well, I actually just need to have a conversation about it because I put this in there and then I didn't uh, learn about these. You didn't read it? I did. I did. I like specifically the thing that was interesting in there was the the movement to stage one of something called extractors mm. or extractor objects. And I was hoping that one of you could explain what this is to me because I looked at <laughs> it. I looked at the syntax and it didn't make a whole lot of sense. On the, like it did in one specific use case, but I'm not sure that I'm understanding it correctly. And so it says that this is like there's prior art in like Rust and potentially Rust and like Scala. Scala has extractor objects. Are other of you familiar with extractors? Well, Nix, extractors would augment the syntax of binding pattern and assignment pattern <laughs> to allow for new destructuring forms, as in the following examples. So looking at that, it looks like it's doing like the destructuring, like the object or array destructuring that you would normally like, or that we're all accustomed to now, hopefully in, in JavaScript. But in this case, they're calling like a method like foo on the, like the property that they're destructuring. Is that just all it is? Is it a way to perform calculations like in line on a, on a destructured value? Yeah, I think that's what I'm seeing here is doing some sort of sort of more complicated logic as, as you destructure. And some of that might even be like the, I'm looking right now at what it's, what the Rust example is, like being able to match for more complicated structures than just like a, a very simple object, right? So like, okay, destructure into this, but only if A and B both exist and have this relationship to each other or something like that, right? Like um, mm -hmm. kind of pattern matching as a way to do branches in functions or things like that as a, a pattern that has not shown up in JavaScript that I'm aware of before, but is something that is, I think, pretty widely used in functional languages as a, a way Yes, to but isn't pattern matching also making its way through TC39? I don't know. As its own mm. feature? I think it is, but I'm not sure. I, I, I agree with you that it seems like the intention of this is to do assignment and binding in a case where you're doing more logic in the actual expression, right? Because you're calling a function which can do some smarts. Yeah. And whether that's match or condition and then return what you're assigning to out of that, which is, I guess, a little bit kind of syntax sugar because you could always just do that in a more verbose way by not doing that. But I mean, still could be handy. And Destructuring is syntax sugar and it's wonderful. It is. <laughs> it makes for such more readable code. It's more readable. Let me try and give like a simple example. If I had like an object that had an X property on it and X is a string and I wanted to, like normally what I would do is I would destructure X and then I would say like X dot two lowercase. Is this saying that I could just destructure and two lowercase it all in one line? Yes. Okay, I'm sold. I want this. I think that's what it's saying. I said that very confidently. I think that's what it's saying. And not only that, you could potentially coerce it, right? So you could say this right. is coming from three different types and I'm going to coerce it to a string and lowercase it. Uh, now, can you send it? So I would assume that that logic, though, lives elsewhere. In an extractor object. In an extractor object, right. That's what that foo is in this example. Yeah. Right. Okay. So it's not like a, you can't just like do it with an anonymous function or something. I mean, maybe, maybe that's also in there, mm -hmm. but you have to have this extractor object that you're defining elsewhere and then calling in the assignment expression. Okay. And you define the matcher with a symbol. So you get to use all sorts of fun things that you hardly ever use in JavaScript. That's the, I mean, it's stage one proposal. Stage one. Also. So like this, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is going to change how it looks. This will never happen. Uh, <laughs> It may happen, but however it happens has very high likelihood to look nothing like the current syntax. Right. This is a proposal that's very early on. But I'm sold. I like that idea. There are several times where I think, man, I just have to 
destructure something and then have another line to do some additional thing on it. And like, if you're like setting it with const and you can't do that, like you'd have to like let it so that you can then change it later or set, assign it to another variable. And it's just messy. Are you hating on let? Yes, of course. Why? It's so handy in that case. There's a TypeScript reason for that because it const will narrow the types further for you and let won't. Not my problem, Nick. Not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there's that. Stage three array dot from async. Has anybody looked at this one or should we move on to the next story? This looks like the other piece of information from this meeting. I mean, I think this is a relatively simple one and kind of moving to once again, being able to make async stuff a little bit more first class mm -hmm. and be able to kind of do a set of awaits for an array of things. Yeah, so it's the same thing as from, but it's in an async. It's from async. That's what I'm seeing here. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So stage three on that sucker. So where does it go from there? Stage four? Yeah, stage three would be it's getting implementations in like browser engines. And it's relatively stable at that point. Like it's very unlikely that the syntax will change at this point. Gotcha. Has it made its way into can I use yet? Unless I'm uh, spelling it wrong or something. All right, so those are some notes. Those are some updates from the 92nd TC39 meeting. You know what would be fun is we should maybe figure out when the 100th TC39 meeting is and like everybody crash it, you know? Wouldn't that be kind of cool? <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm sure they'd appreciate it. Like maybe like a few thousand people show up to the meeting. It's a Zoom meeting, right? I don't know what it is. Is there a way we could do like a flash mob style thing? So not only do people That's what I'm talking about. show up, mm -hmm. they like do something. Yeah. Maybe that'll coincide with the um, with like the advancement of the the type annotations proposal and we can like stage like a sit-in until they approve <laughs> it or something. <laughs> We're not leaving. This dog might hunt. Let's continue to riff on this idea. So dear listener, if you have ideas around how we might make their 100th meeting very special, whether it be a protest or a party, <laughs> we're up for anything. Let us know in the comments or on Twitter. Okay, let's go back to another story. Linkify shipped their version 4.0. Have you guys heard about Linkify? Nope. No, not before this. Yeah, this is a cool plugin. It seems like a common problem that lots of people have. It's just a JavaScript plugin, and it takes well-formed plain text and linkifies it. So maybe you have some bare URLs in there. Maybe you have some hashtags. Maybe you have an at mention. And you just want to take that plain text, pass it off to some library, and end up with like hyperlinks integrated into that, all prettified. All Linkified, that's what Linkify does. So mm -hmm. the news, I guess, is that they've shipped version 4, which means they've been iterating a lot or making a lot of breaking changes if they're just semantic versioning <laughs> because, uh, you know, v4, that's a big number. But it's been around for a little while. It works server-side, I think, and browser-side. And so you can use it in server-side rendering, no cost to your users. You can ship it in the browser, and I'm not sure what it's going to cost them. It'll cost them a little bit. But your own code would also cost them something as well. This is the kind of thing that we all kind of unit test. Like it's a nice, usually simple starting a couple of regex, unit test it, and I'm good to go. And there's just tons of hairy little edge cases that end up biting you. And you have to write lots of unit tests over time and slowly learn where your linkifying broke. So cool to see a community project here an open source thing where everybody can work on the same thing and solve a lot of those problems. They have lots of cool little features where like you can configure it to like add attributes like no follows or rel equals UGC, those kind of things. So that if you're using on user generated content and you're linkifying their strings, the spam bots will leave you alone because they're not going to get their SEO juice. So mm -hmm. that's linkify thoughts. My first Thought immediately because the example is like showing this you working in Markdown and to continue my discussion of uh, Obsidian on this podcast, there is an Obsidian plugin. I found that and it's awesome. You can just like put in your own syntax for like, you know, I can put GH colon and then I could just have like something and it will just linkify that to a GitHub link to specifically what I want it to be. Oh, that's cool. So you just configure it for yourself and yeah. use it. That's neat. Yeah, it looks like I'm looking through it. 
it's very configurable. So you can kind of look for and match against different like types of domains or different, you know, if you have like at mentions, you can decide, is that going to GitHub or Twitter, or maybe you do a little bit of checking in some way, you could probably add your own stuff. So yeah, this is, this looks neat. Yeah. And they have like this test function as well. So that, I mean, they've obviously built up this huge matcher library of different strings and regular expressions. I'm not sure how it's implemented under the hood. Maybe there's like a AST down in there, a string AST that, uh, that has all, all tests. And so you can actually even use it with linkify.test, pass it a string and you can, is it a valid email? Is it a valid domain? Like these things that we end up implementing ourselves, you could rely on that in your test suite. Some uh, real-time follow-up, that Obsidian plugin is in no way using Linkify. So oh, it's not? It's just, no. Just called Linkify. Just the same name. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a good name. Still cool. So yeah, it's still noteworthy. I'm just looking at what it's doing right now. It looks like it's tokenizing the string. Does have some amount of like regex replacements for like escaping and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is it getting the K-Ball seal approval? Is this a code review? Is how K-Ball does code review in this work? We could do a code review. <laughs> I'm being much more ad hoc than I would for my own, like for a real code review, but I'm just kind of like jumping in a little bit. It's, so it looks like it has its own little tokenization logic. So it's it is it's serious then. It is serious. How is it doing this tokenizing? Let's see. You can use it with React. You can use it with jQuery or directly with the browser DOM. I'm just filling in Cable's blank space while he reads code. All right, final code review, Cable. What grade do you give this? It's definitely more robust than just a set of link uh, regexes. Yeah. Yeah, it's doing kind of a robust. It has a state machine based parser. It's going through so. This is better than you're going to write on your own. What's up, friends? This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the release of Sourcegraph 4.0 and the Starship event just a few weeks behind us, it is super clear that Sourcegraph is becoming not just code search, but a full-on code intelligence platform. And I'm here with Joel Cortler, product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, this move from code search to code intelligence is a really big deal. How would you explain this feature, Code Insights, if you're just talking to folks in the hallway track of your favorite conference? Um, I would really start with technical because before I was product manager, I used to be an engineer as well. And it's really cool and exciting just to be able to say, we're going to turn your code base into a database. And the structured language that you need to interact is just the ability to write a, a code search. You know, literal search, that's totally fine. Regular expression, you know, that'll give you a few more advanced options, even a structural search. But the number of long tail possibilities it unlocks, truly the journey of building this product was just saying, well, we've just unlocked, you know, an infinite number of possibilities. We got to figure out some immediate use cases so we can start to, you know, invest in this product, build it and sell it. But we're only getting started in terms of the number of uses that we're uncovering for it. The story I told you about discovering like version tracking turned out to be a really important use case that wasn't even on our roadmap six months prior to discovering that as we were already planning to launch this product until we talked to enough folks, realized this was a problem and then found, well, oh, that's like a simple regular expression capture group that you can just plug right in because we've really built this system to not limit the power of what we've built. We don't want to give you like three out of the box templates and you can only change like one character or something. It's truly like the templates are there to hold your hand to get you started but if you can come up with anything you want to track in your code base you can do that with code insights i love it thank you joel so right now there is a treasure trove of insights just waiting for you living inside your code base your code base is now a queryable database thanks to source graph this opens up a world of possibilities for your code and the intelligence you can gain from it a good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. The link will be in the show notes. See how the teams are using this awesome feature. Again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. Again, this link is in the show notes. And by our friends at Fly, run your full stack apps and your databases, close your users all over the world, no ops required. And I'm here with Brad Gessler, who is helping to build the future Rails cloud at Fly. Brad, what's got you excited about Rails on Fly? 
Uh, it's no secret that Rails is this really productive framework and application. We've also seen that happen. There's a bajillion different hosts that you can choose from out there that all make it really easy to deploy your Rails applications. We've had these for years. Right. There's nothing really magical about that anymore. It's just, this is what we expect. We want to type a deploy command and this thing ends up on a server somewhere. The thing that I think that sets Fly apart from all that is it scales. It has so many scaling stories. It has, again, the table stakes stuff. Ooh, wow, you can add more memory to a machine. All those things you would expect from a hosting provider. Again, Fly, you can scale out. You're going to have customers that live in Singapore, that live in Frankfurt. You need to get servers there. And mm. Fly lets you do that. Again, with just a few commands, you can provision all these servers in these different parts of the world. And then the real magic with one command, you can type in Fly Deploy and you have all these servers provisioned around the world. They just work. Mm -hmm. People hit yourcompany.com and they're hitting the Frankfurt server. And the same person in Singapore is typing in your .com and it just works and they're hitting your servers in Singapore. <laughs> so this thing scales out beautifully, which is really important, especially if you're starting to run turbo applications or turbo native applications where you need that really low latency. Your application needs to respond to these users in under 100 milliseconds. Otherwise, to them, it's not going to be instant. They're going to be waiting. It's important to be fast and Fly makes that possible. The reason I joined it is because of this kind of global magic that we're going to be shipping. And that's something that I want to bring to Rails developers all around the world. That's awesome. Thanks, Brad. So the future Rails cloud is at Fly. Global Magic is on its way. Try it free today at fly.io. Again, fly.io. Well, in big news, sort of old news at this point, but big splash was the Adobe acquisition of Figma for 20 bills. No, that's not $20. That's $20 billion. A large price tag. One of the largest tech acquisitions, I think, of all time. I know Slack, I think, was $27 billion. But, you know, these are huge numbers. And for me, it was a total surprise. I don't know if you guys saw this one coming. I mean, I think the acquirer in retrospect is obvious, but I just didn't think we'd see a big acquisition, especially with the state of the market. So what was your guys' initial reactions to the Figma acquisition? Well, <laughs> well said. Also, I know a guy over at Figma. All right, he's rich now. Good for him. Yeah. Good for him. I mean, so... Actually, let me put a little bit of color around my Welsh. It's already pretty colorful. I'm less concerned about the future of the core design tool. I think Adobe actually, for all that their stuff gets pretty complex, they care deeply about the core design tools. They've done a reasonably good job on historic tools. I think they're going to invest in it because Figma is a really good thing that fits well into their wheelhouse. What I'm more concerned about is, you know, they Fig Jam and a range of things like that. So I love FigJam. It's like built on the Figma engine, but it's just this very simplified UI and it's for like brainstormings and other, other type of things. It's like an infinitely better version of whatever Google's Jamboard thing is, right? It is like a thousand times better than Jamboard. And I use it all the time. I use it for myself, for organizing thinking. I use it to run different types of meetings and conversations. Like it, it is, for a distributed team, it's a phenomenal tool. And I don't know that it fits in Adobe's wheelhouse. Like, I don't know that it's something they're going to care about, keep investing in, or anything. I also, you know, I had a conversation with some folks at Figma the last time I was kind of looking around for possible other jobs, which I ended up deciding, no, I like it where I am. But, you know, they were looking at all sorts of other takes like that of where can we take this core engine of Figma and apply it in sort of a limited or, or specialized way to a particular problem domain, which I think is a really, really, really cool area and not something that feels like Adobe's approach. And so I think we may end up missing out on a lot of potentially cool innovation that could have happened around that. And I'm terrified that we're going to lose FigJam because I love that tool. I had never used FigJam and this is awesome. I've never heard the word FigJam until a few minutes ago. Same. 
If you lead discussions in a distributed setting, it will change your world. It is absolutely freaking phenomenal. It looks a lot like Miro, which is something that I'm more familiar with, but I like this. It's kind of, yeah, Miro has some similarities. Fig Jam is better. Yeah, when I heard this news, I was pretty excited because now my daughter will have some software keys to share with her friends during high school for Figma, <laughs> like I did with Photoshop. <laughs> nice. I mean, I never did that. Well, now we don't know what to believe, Nick. <laughs> did you or didn't you? If you're a lawyer or seeking litigation, I never did that. Right. This is not an admission. <laughs> well, I mean, we we do think probably Adobe sees a lot of those keys into the world, you know, because then they get you hooked really young when you don't have any money. Yeah. And then you love Photoshop. Then you get older, start making some money, and you're like, oh, maybe I should pay for this. I did. Brilliant. A masterstroke, if that's what they did, but... It worked perfectly for me. I was like, man, this is amazing. And then I got uh, Pixelmator. And <laughs> yeah. So I'm an Adobe user now, begrudgingly at first. And I've grown to appreciate a lot of their tools. They're definitely complex and have steep learning curves and are so non web, you know, they're so pre web tools. That this was an like I said when I heard it I was like well that's a really good move for Adobe even though their stock dropped to match like it dropped twenty billion or something something like that that the investors didn't like the move at least initially but it seemed like a smart move for Adobe because they have a lot of great engineers over there and some really top of the market software but it's not webby and they're getting their lunch eaten by Figma as the price tag indicates. And so good for them. I hope they're good stewards of it. I have no idea about Fig Jam or whether or not that's going to continue to be a thing. I hope it is for your sake, K-Ball. But I guess tying into this news is there's now this other thing, right? PenPot, which raised a big round of funding. I know that about it. I don't know much about PenPot, but I did see an announcement of funding in the wake of the Figma acquisition. So somebody tell us about PenPot and how this plays into the conversation. Yeah, I saw this probably on Hacker News or somewhere on the same day that the Figma news was was released. And I mean, in a lot of ways, that was probably a re reaction to this, to that news. But it looks very similar to my non-design eyes as Figma, but it is more SVG based. So it, it's built more on open standards. Product Hunt, over a thousand of votes on Product Hunt. They raised a Series A. Design Freedom for Teams, they're calling it the first open source design and prototyping platform meant for cross-domain teams, web-based, and works with open standards, SVG. Okay, Bob, what do you know about PenPot? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> I like SVGs. I think, you know, if they can make it work, that's great. One thing that I felt like Figma got really right was the collaborative aspect of it. They made sort of conversation about design a huge part of their approach. This was how they ate sketches lunch, right? They realized that in a web world, in the design world, you're not creating these things in a vacuum. You are creating these things to share, to discuss, to talk about, to hand off. And so, you know, when you, they have both the commenting and discussion stuff built in. And also when you look at a component, you can like see exactly, you can annotate it. You can put all sorts of stuff about like what's the CSS and what are the different things there. I don't know what PenPot is or does, but I'm like scanning the video on their homepage and I don't see either of those aspects being shown up right now. And so to me, this feels like this is a solo design tool. It might grow into it, but if they're not thinking about not just the process of an individual creating design assets, but the holistic design process, which is about communication and feedback and handoffs and all of those things, I don't think they're going to be able to compete. So PenPot is completely open source. Looks like a pretty permissive Mozilla public license, web-based, and they say it's specifically for cross-domain teams. So I think that that's at least on their radar, if not an emphasis Oh, and actually, as it gets to later in the preview, I am seeing they did have some commenting stuff. So I guess it'll depend on how they execute it. Yeah. There. That would be my, so few people are able to get that whole like collaboration process right. And Figma really did. Yeah. And I think that's what's made them excel. 
Well, it will be interesting to watch, see how Adobe handles the acquisition and the takeover and what happens with Figma from here. And I just think that we'll see more, maybe Penpot is the one, but we'll see more competitors in this space as Figma laid the groundwork for what is clearly a better way of collaborating. And we know that one of the most expensive, cumbersome, and slow parts of the software development lifecycle is the integration point between design and dev. And like, there's so much room for gains there and productivity wins and better collaboration, which produces better end products that there's certainly mm -hmm. room for more tooling. And uh, we'll continue to see advancements as, as these things build out. All right, that's what's new and noteworthy. Uh, any last links you guys just have to shove in there that don't have TypeScript in the title before <laughs> we call it a show? I feel like I'm being called out here. I had a TypeScript link. I'm going to call out a non-tech one that I think is going to rock the tech world a little bit, which is this California pay transparency law. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. California just pub, uh, signed a, or created, passed, what's the word I'm looking for, passed a new law that California companies for California jobs have to post, all their job postings have to include pay rates, uh, ranges. We've already seen, before this most recent like mini bust that's going on, like we saw the kind of distributed world salaries skyrocketing in a lot of different places as they were able to, as more and more companies based in these high paying locations were hiring. But I think there's still probably a whole large amount of the tech world that does not realize how bloody much money Silicon Valley companies throw at developers. Like it goes around periodically. If you work for big tech and you're like even a few years out of college, you're fully loaded, probably making half a mil. I was say 300 to 500 is pretty typical, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of folks just have not internalized that. And this is going to change that. Because suddenly these folks, it's going to be visible. And, you know, there's all sorts of interesting and weird ripple effects, right? Like those big tech companies can do that because they have massive revenue streams relative to employees, right? They have, mm -hmm. they have figured out businesses or business models where they get massive leverage on engineering employees. If that was the, the salary across the board, there's tremendous numbers of software businesses that today are viable that would not be viable, right? Because not everybody's able to make that amount of revenue right. per software engineering employee. And so this is going to like, I don't know, it's going to have some really interesting downstream. How long do you think until we like see ramifications of something like this? Like are we talking uh, 12 months, 18 months? You're talking about five years? Like how long does it take for us to start to see this actually change the way people talk about these things, the way they hire, et cetera? I think it depends a lot on the job market. So we saw in, in the tight job market distributed world that we saw in 2021, we saw massive changes in the course of a year. Now everybody's doing layoffs and belt tightening and right. not hiring anymore and things like that. We may not see much for a while because jobs are a little bit more scarce. But the next time they get tight, that's when we're going to see extremely rapid change, I think, in this area in terms of what people are asking for. And they're going to have this benchmark now. Right. Power to the people. Does this just affect like base pay? Is that something that they need to disclose, but not necessarily the other perks? Individuals? Mm, let's see. Yeah, the devil's in the details of that law and how it's actually going to be enforced and rolled out. Yeah. And depending on how that is, that might affect like how those are distributed. Like it might be lower or might be higher base pay and then like different metrics on right unclear it's unclear well and it it does create weird dynamics right like so you have netflix which is famous slash infamous for they don't do rsus they don't give out stock but they have sky high mm -hmm. salaries so mostly when you're hearing that 300 to 500 range for like a big tech company like maybe 150 of that is in salary and the rest is rsus maybe it's a little higher if you're more senior things like that but like most of it's in restricted stock units, which is a fun like tax accounting game and all this other stuff. Netflix, it's in bloody cash. Like a lot of the engineers there are getting 500 grand in cash each year. Will be interesting to watch. All right, we got to end it. But Nick, I'll throw you a freaking bone here. TypeScript <laughs> 4.9 beta satisfies. Is this is that a statement or is that a feature? What's going on here with the satisfaction? 
I'll be quick on this. But in 4.9, they're adding a new satisfies keyword so that you can say like, you can define that this object or whatever satisfies some type that you define later, but it does so in a way that doesn't affect how that type is then used or narrowed later on. And so like previously we have this as keyword, which is like, um, oh, what's that term from like other languages? Type casting. Where you like, you cast, you're like casting. Casting, yeah. Yeah. You're casting to something else. You can do that in TypeScript. They have like the traditional like angle bracket cast syntax, but also they have this as keyword so that it plays better with like React, like the JSX. And now they have this satisfies keyword, which will do the same thing. So I can say like, oh, this object satisfies this interface or whatever, but it won't actually like change that. So if you're, if you said that it was, if you're satisfying this requirement that this be a key value pair where the key is a specific key, like red, green, or blue, and the values are string or a number, when you, you're not casting to that so that when you do a check later, you're doing like, oh, my object dot red is equal to a string or a number. Like it won't cast it to be either a string or a number for that value. It'll be the actual value that it is, that it knows that it is being number or string so that you can do like number operations or string operations directly on it without having to do an additional check. So it's just some syntactic sugar on top of that. It's a little bit more of an intelligent casting in that it won't mess up the types that you already have. And as I learned this morning, you can chain those. So I can say like satisfies this constraint. And then after that do satisfies this constraint and it'll like block on either of those. And it's just proving that TypeScript gives you more satisfaction. So (laughs) if I understand correctly, it's allowing you to make more type assurances without manipulating the types of what's coming down. Exactly. Yeah. So like you can say like, going back to my two lowercase, you could say like my object.red dot two lowercase. And you can do that because you know that you set red as a string value, like a hex value or whatever. And then like my object.blue you set as a number, meaning like, I don't know, a number value. You can't do two lowercase on a number. And so it'll like throw an error at you if you try and do that on blue specifically. Whereas if you did the casting of it, the value would be either string or number and you would have to further narrow the type on your own before you could do either of those operations. Whereas with satisfies, you can ensure that you have, that you're meeting whatever like type that you're wanting to meet without actually affecting that and having to do more manual type narrowing later on. So looking at Jared's face and knowing that he doesn't work with TypeScript very often, I think the only (laughs) thing that can be said here is he can't get no satisfaction. This is a whole bunch of uh, interesting tidbits about code that never actually runs at runtime. So more <laughs> more TypeScript goodness. Oh, isn't the TypeScript, didn't somebody show that the type system itself is Turing complete? Yes. There's some fun examples of that too. There is a, like a, I forgot the name of that game, but like the text-based game adventure where you like type in like, look left and then it tells you, you looked left and you saw a wall or you saw a door. There's a lot of those, yeah, but like the... Yeah. Right. Somebody did that in the type system. So you just like append types of like... Yes, they did. TypeScript text adventure. I saw that. It's amazing. I just feel like, you know, we built this house of cards and then we took like a bunch of popsicle sticks and we're like trying to frame it up around the outsides with the popsicle sticks and TypeScript is the popsicle sticks. And that just leads us to one last thing to say. JavaScript should be destroyed. <laughs> As always, Chris gets the last word. And uh, we really can't top that. This has been JS Party. All the links to all those things are in your show notes. If you haven't subscribed yet, hey, maybe consider subscribing. we got some really cool episodes coming down the pipeline. Docusaurus is coming up. We have Kevin Powell, the great CSS-based YouTuber, coming on the show a couple of book authors, Martin Dowden and Michael Guerin, talking about tiny CSS projects. We've got Thomas Steiner coming on, talking Project Fugu from Google. So lots of interesting guests. And of course, we always mix in fun and <laughs> roundtable discussions, or whatever this one was. We mix these kind of ones in as well throughout. So subscribe to the pod if you haven't yet. And uh, that's all. Any final words from you guys? I guess I said Chris gets the final word, but then I happen to open it back up again. Move quickly. I got to try my mimicking this time. JavaScript should be destroyed. You did not just say that. (laughs) 
That's a great idea. I'm glad I had it. <laughs> All right. That is our show. We will talk to you on the next one. All right. That is JS Party for this week. Thanks for hanging with us. Changelog++ members can stick around for two bonus chapters on this episode. We've loaded up the pre-show and a lengthy discussion during one of our breaks for your enjoyment. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Changelog++ is our membership program where you can directly support our work, save yourself some time by making the ads disappear from all of our shows, and get in on cool bonuses like extended episodes, merch discounts, free stickers, stuff like that. Check it out at changelog.com slash plus plus. Special thanks once again to our partners at Fastly and Fly.io. They help make JS Party possible. And to Breakmaster Cylinder for keeping our beat supply topped up. Our beats are dope because BMC makes dope beats. It's as simple as that. Next up on the pod, Amel and myself are joined by Sebastian Lorbert with Docusaurus. He tells us all about their big 2.0 release and all the open source goodness it contains. Stay tuned for that. We'll have it ready for you next week. Music